We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. This is episode 17, the early signing day edition. We'll talk about a few things other than early signing day, but I'm James DiVirgilio alongside... Alan Williams, who is in Moscow. It's past midnight as we're recording there. Alan, thanks as always for joining me at this late hour for you. Uh, how is how is Moscow and how is post-early signing day for you out there in Russia? It's great. Moscow's looking beautiful. We got some snow. They really know how to do winter well here, as you would expect. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. You're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. And I think I think early signing day was a big relief for me. Uh, I was a little nervous about it. I thought it could go poorly for us. And it kind of went the other way. How did you feel about it? I feel great. I can't wait to dive in and talk about it. Like you mentioned, we were really hovering on on maybe the point of of panic for some people. If you weren't following this closely, then this won't feel this way to you. But things were sort of diving uh, maybe a bit out of control. And we're going to get into the big takeaways as well as some of the analytical thoughts. We'll talk about what happened while we were away and then catch you up to speed with what happened on Wednesday with the early signing day period. Before we get to that, if you love today's content, as always, we ask that you drop us a like on Facebook and or support us financially on Patreon. You could throw us two bucks a month. 
uh, which makes Alan and I feel really great. And we'll also give you some extra special content coming forth in the spring. All right, with that out of the way, Alan, you mentioned some of the big takeaways. We talked about where we were coming into in this class. I'll give you some numbers. We sort of entered Wednesday morning in a murky area. And we'll start first with the biggest news. We had lost Matt Corral the week before to Old Miss. Now, those of you that have been longtime listeners of the show have heard me say Matt Corral should not have come here. Uh, I think that's the right move for Matt Corral not to come here. He listened to you. Yeah, he listened to me, right? He listens to the show, obviously, as a fan. But he wasn't a fit. I think Mullen was making it rather clear to him indirectly, if that makes sense, rather clear indirectly that he he wasn't going to be great here. Although Mullen and Brian Johnson, the quarterback coach, did make an in-home visit to him the day that he essentially flipped over and went to Old Miss. I think the reality was they were really aggressively trying to get somebody else. So Matt Corral goes to Old Miss. Whether or not that made sense for Matt to Corral is a different decision. We won't cover that. It's a little bit questionable, I think, at times given his talent. But I think the kid really wanted to play in the SEC, and that was his last remaining best shot at that. So we enter into this scenario without a quarterback, woefully short on linebackers. We didn't really have a whole lot of momentum going into the early signing day period, and there were a lot of question marks as to what was going to happen, who we were going to land. And by some recruiting services estimates, we could have finished Wednesday, Allen, in the 30s in recruiting, in the 30s, which would have been panic button time, I think, for sure. Uh, As it turns out, spoiler alert, 247 Sports, which is really the industry composite, that's what we'll use, it sort of compiles all of the rankings together, has us currently ranked 14th and fourth in the SEC. We entered Wednesday morning at ninth in the SEC. And uh, so this was a big jump for us. This was solid. Now let's unpack what happened here, Alan, and let's talk about first the biggest get of the class thus far. This guy, you'll be hearing his name a lot the next couple of years. It's a great name too. Emory Jones. He's a quarterback dual threat guy out of Georgia, actually. A guy who'd been committed to Ohio State for a long time, I think like a year and a half. But just a few weeks ago, I think after we kind of lost out on Justin Fields, who went to Georgia and some other guys were kind of poked around at, this guy kind of came on our radar. And I know that Dan Mullen had recruited him before Mississippi State, but basically they turned, I guess, all their attention on him. And we won a recruiting battle against Florida State. And, you know, Alabama was trying to get him. Ohio State was trying to get him. And so that's a huge win. For the program and this is such a big need huge need for this program james just how big is it for us right now yeah quarterback is the most important position in sports and as we've said for the past month since we knew that mullen was the coach that quarterback in this system was unique you had to have the right guy you had to have a guy who could run and was comfortable running and you had to have a guy with size Emery fits that, although not to a T. He's, in fact, probably a much better thrower, much better thrower than the prototypical quarterback for this system. He's a weaker runner than what you would expect. You really could almost categorize Emery Jones as a pro-style quarterback. In fact, once upon a time, he was, which means he's more comfortable in the pocket passing the ball. If you look at him in a scouting report, he's got an absolute cannon for an arm, very, very strong arm, likes to throw the football, can run the ball, does not have a 40-yard dash time that's impressive, 4.65, is uh, isn't particularly super quick, but he is athletic and he can run, uh, so don't don't fall asleep on that. But he is not, this is not Tim Tebow, Cam Newton, Nick Fitzgerald of Mississippi State. 
He's not that kind of runner, but he can competently run and he will run. And he's a big enough body right now. He's 6'3", about 200 pounds that he can do it. But this is not, I think, even a Dan Mullen prototypical kind of guy, uh, unless, like most of us hope, me included, right, that we morph our offense to be a bit more passing friendly. And maybe, Alan, this is a tip in the cap in that direction. It very well could be because Emory Jones, like I would say, I think his best talent is his football IQ and decision making, which is extremely important, along with his arm strength. So this might be an interesting experiment in year one. In fact, I think it's gotten me more excited about what may happen this upcoming season than I was, as you guys have heard me in the doldrums for the past three weeks, than I was before because Emory's talent is absolutely throwing the ball. He is he is a competent runner, but he really is a solid thrower of the football as far as a senior in high school goes. So take that with a grain of salt. It will be interesting to see how we adopt and adapt his skills in the offense around what he does best because this is not a guy this is not a guy Allen that's you know going to just run you over and carry the ball 15 times a game especially without a backup so I do expect I do expect possibly to see uh, some more passing based principles in here now Allen Emory Jones is a four-star recruit Uh, some services has him as a five-star for those of you that know what that means we're going to over explain this because there's several of you that don't know what that means. What does it really mean to be a four star versus a five star? Does it matter? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So these were all these recruiting services, you know, rank these guys and there's a lot of them out there. You mentioned the 24 seven sports composite, which kind of like aggregates all those things. So I went and looked around at different sites and different services and how they did things. And You'll find Emory Jones somewhere in the top 40, as high as like 26 or 27, as low as maybe like 40. And, you know, how usually maybe 10 to 25 five stars per year. And that, you know, I don't think they have a, here's the best 25 guys who, so those top 25 guys are five stars. They only rate those guys as they see fit. But there's a much bigger range of four star guys, you know in the 300s to 400, depending on what you're looking at. So Emory Jones, on, I think on Rivals, I think there were 26 five-stars, and he was ranked number 27. So he's at the very top of that. So if a five-star thing kind of matters to you, he's in that range. He's right up there next to that. If you want to call him a five-star recruit, you can, because he's right there alongside those guys. He's a huge talent. Um, and you know, neither James and I have broken down the film, but if you just want to take what the recruiting services say about him and where they rank him, he's very, very highly ranked. He's not just a four-star. He's a top of that range four-star guy and essentially a five-star player, you know, if you don't want to split hairs here. And this is huge for the program uh, in a lot of ways, but he is a guy that we needed because on our roster as we said we've got three guys in jake allen felipe franks and kyle trask who are probably not credible threats running the ball and to make dan mullen's offense work the quarterback has to at least be a credible threat and probably more than a credible threat a a dynamic threat and you know we'll see about emory jones how if he's dynamic enough but he at least fits the bill of what they're looking for and this is a huge get late in this process um it seemed like if they missed on him, who knows what they would have pulled in. This at least gives the program a lot of hope, 
I think it's something to rally around. Um, and a lot of people have been pointing to the potential for him, I guess, to bring in other recruits or guys to kind of rally around him. James, do you anticipate that happening? I'm not sure. He hasn't been that kind of guy, although he committed to Ohio State really early in the process. And Ohio State is not a place where you have to be that guy. So time will tell if he's sort of the rah-rah guy that Matt Corral really was. And not every guy that gets recruited at that spot is. So I, I don't know. I'd like to think that he would. But even if he kept his mouth shut and said nothing, getting a guy of this caliber is tremendous momentum-wise for the program. If you are now a wide receiver, you're a defensive player, you now know that Dan Mullen, who's a guy that's had a lot of success with quarterbacks, has a guy that he thinks he can have success with. This is a guy that fits his bill. This is a guy that was committed to Ohio State. Uh, was getting strong interest from Florida State and chose to come to Florida. That should say a lot to you about where the program is going. And I think that's probably the most important narrative, whether or not Emory is able to bring that home. That remains to be seen. Uh, But Emory is a solid football player. Now, you're going to hear me say this a lot. The name of the game in recruiting is getting several of these guys because the reality is we don't know if Emory is going to be good at the University of Florida. Sure, right now on film, he's solid. He's got the right size. He's got a great football IQ. But you just don't know what happens when the lights are on at the next level. You'd like to have a couple of other Emory Joneses. But what you said, Alan, is really key. If we didn't get Emory, the majority of quarterbacks are signing and enrolling early. So you are left with a tremendous project kind of guy uh, in the wings. And that would have been, I think, a major problem for us as we head into February recruiting-wise. This was a huge hole to fill. And we had a little bit of a leg up because Dan Mullen was the first to offer Emory Jones way back when. He had some familiarity with them. Willie Taggart did not have such familiarity, kind of came in close at the end, tried to close hard. So things were favorable for us, but we had to get Emory Jones. We had to get Emory Jones. Really important. The potential was solid. And the rest of the guys we got on early signing day were also solid. We maintained a lot of the guys that McElwain had recruited. Uh, and I'm going to read off the list of who we have here. I'm going to read off the positions. And again, the names of these guys shouldn't matter too much to you right now unless you love following recruiting. The positions, however, should matter. And that's really what Alan and I are here for, is to analyze how we're building a roster. And so positions are going to matter the most. So we'll give you the national ranking, which we talked a lot about last year. It's very, very important to have a high number of players in the top 300 There's a lot of data that I think would indicate causation and correlation to winning championships by having X number of players in that top 300. It's also very important to have top 100 players. In fact, on your roster, you generally want to have between 9 and 12 top 100 players in order to be competitive at the highest level. We are far away from that, and it's something you'll hear us talk about. So without further ado, here we go. Emory Jones, nationally 40th on the composite. So that's the kind of top 100. He's a four-star. Then we have Kyle Pitts, who's a tight end, 147th nationally. Amari Bernie, who's a safety. He's 169th nationally. Damian Pierce, who's a running back. He's 199th nationally. Trey Dean, who's a safety, 250th nationally. Iverson Clement, who's an athlete, so he could play a variety of positions depending on need, 283rd nationally. David Reese, yes, we have a second David Reese coming into the program. That should be a lot of fun. Yeah, two hundred and eighty both playing linebacker, both playing linebacker, two hundred eighty ninth nationally and an outside linebacker. Randy Russell out of Miami, a safety, three hundred ninety eighth nationally. John Huggins, a safety, four hundred thirty seventh nationally. Chris Bilsch, an offensive tackle, four hundred forty third nationally. 
Noah Banks, offensive tackle. He's like 500 and something nationally. Uh, he's listed incorrectly on on 24-7. Dante Lang is a tight end, 610th nationally. And then Evan McPherson, a kicker who's actually second uh, as far as nationally kicker-wise, but not ranked nationally as far as a recruit, which is pretty typical. So what you see there is right now we have a variety of top 300 guys, which is actually strong. Uh, we're far, far behind the elite programs in that number. But a lot of these guys are in the top 300. What you, what you didn't hear me say, Alan, is that we have a lot of linebacker recruits. Now, we have mentioned coming into this early signing day that the biggest holes in our roster are linebacker and quarterback. We have one quarterback. It would probably be wise for us to sign another one uh, coming into February. We have one, but we have one linebacker on the roster. He's a very, very good one. But that is obviously a position of need in this one. Now, surprising, Alan, we signed three safeties in early signing day. Does that surprise you? Because safety was not necessarily a position of need based upon what we had on the roster. What are your thoughts about that? It's interesting. Um, And some of these guys, uh, Bernie and Dean, some of the bigger guys, I could see ending up as linebackers. Um, Mullen was quoted as talking about valuing positional flexibility on defense, which is where you see the NFL going. So if, if you imagine a guy like Keanu Neal, is he a linebacker? Is he a safety? Um, the guys in Carolina on the Panthers, Thomas Davis, and um, a couple of the other linebackers who are very fluid in coverage and are excellent along the line of scrimmage. So I could see some of those guys possibly ending up at linebacker. They're kind of these tweener guys. And normally you might overlook them, but and that's what you're looking for in a defense. That those guys are excellent kind of prospects. Um so I, I assume that we will sign some more traditional linebackers, and especially some of the bigger kind of linebackers to play on the outside. Uh, so, yeah, when I saw four safeties, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But we'll see if all these guys end up at safety. And the thing is I looked at with the four- and three-star guys, like you don't want to have too many three-star guys if you're a place like UF. Now, kicker, you'll never see a kicker higher than three stars. Um Offensive linemen are often three-star guys because they're difficult to evaluate. One of the guys we took was a Juco guy. Um, and so you'll kind of take maybe lack of high end for a guy who can come in and play right away. And some of these defensive players, they're on the edge of three and four stars. Some, sometimes they're four stars, sometimes they're three stars. Um, but I think we got some decent high-end talent. And you want to see at some of your – higher profile positions like the secondary, like um, wide receiver and running back. You want, those guys are easier to evaluate. And so you'd rather see them higher up. You know, you can find some guys on the, you know, linebacker, maybe defensive line that you could, you know, diamonds in the rough, Taven Bryan S kind of players, you know, David Reese are the original David Reese was a three-star guy and he's been excellent for us. So you can find guys like that at some of those positions that are a little harder to evaluate. Um, so I think we did a pretty good job of not just filling the class with guys, which would have been tempting to do. Um, and they got really good talent at the positions that they um, pursued in this round of the recruiting process. Yeah, and one of those positions, Alan, was tight end, which we talked about. We said expect the tight end position to get a significant bump up under Mullen. And that's what happened. Kyle Pitts is a guy that goes 6'5", uh, one of the top tight ends in the country, fantastic athlete, 
that's going to come in. Uh, we also signed uh, the other tight end who's out of out of uh, South Florida, who's also six five. And so I think you're looking more yeah, Dante Lang. Dante Lang, right? Yeah, he's a project guy, but you're looking at a prototypical size guy. You're seeing a system being built in place. And one of the best things about Urban Meyer's system that Dan Mullen also espouses and runs is it does require certain guys at certain places. And half of the battle in life is knowing what to look for. And if you can exclude what you don't want, you can build an effective roster. And again, that differs. You've heard me say a lot about whether or not I love the strategy. Strategically, whatever you feel like you need to do, you need to be able to exclude certain resources that you do not need for your strategy. And I think Dan Mullen has done a nice job identifying the resources that he wants for his strategy. And that alone will make you an above average competitor in whatever field you're in. And it's it's funny that it's that simple, but reality is that's really what it is. Uh, and so I think that's a nice get for us. Tight ends a position of need. Heading into February, of course, and I don't want to jump ahead because this is coming in a second. Heading into February, there are a lot of needs left. We're not going to be able to close all those needs. This is year one for Dan Mullen. This is a month one for Dan Mullen. But early signing day was a great success. This was a great success. And Blake Alderman, who can't join us today, who frequently does, told me yesterday that I don't think you could have expected anything else out of Dan Mullen. He essentially said this was the ceiling for any coach, any coach, he said, that came into Florida under these circumstances. He said it would have been hard to imagine him having a better early signing day than Dan Mullen just had. That's big words from Blake, who's not necessarily flowery with praise on the recruiting trail. Uh, so that's his assessment of what Dan Mullen did on Wednesday. Yeah, that's really great. I, I would agree with that assessment too. He was dealt a difficult hand. We've talked about this a little bit coming in on short notice with this early signing day. And if you're we keep talking about, this is the first time this has ever happened where there's an basically two windows for recruits to sign now here in December and one again in early February. So he was working against, you know, a lot of difficult circumstances. And I thought this was a stellar showing by him and the staff, you know, with all of the chaos of staff changes and being behind the ball with recruiting and Florida not coming off the most stellar of seasons. Um, excellent job by Mullen and the staff. Let me ask you this. There's some question marks around Dan Mullen as a recruiter had done fairly well for Mississippi state in, you know, in terms of their relative success in recruiting. Does this change your opinion of him as a recruiter as of right now? No, no, it doesn't. I don't think I've had a negative impression of him. I think we said very clearly what you just said, Alan, is that he was an above average recruiter at Mississippi state. Um, what we don't know at all about Dan Mullen is whether or not he can be an elite recruiter at an elite school like Florida. That's the question we don't know. And he hasn't proven that yet. I mean, the early signing day was fantastic, but we won't know that. Really, I think we'll know it in year two. Like we said that a lot. It, it, you know quickly if someone's an elite recruiter. It does not take four years to become one. Uh, those of you that are out there talking about Dabo Sweeney right now and how Dabo Sweeney was an elite recruiter near to a Clemson, Clemson was not the school that Florida was when Dabo was there. And for those of you that think that, you're wrong. <laughs> it's just not a comparison. Clemson has become something because of Dabo Sweeney. So different program look there. But at a school like Florida, you would expect a year two signing class from Dan Mullen to be top five if he was in fact elite. 
but I think he proved that he's above average. I think that he has changed. I think Allen, since he was here at Florida, he was not known to be a very good recruiter when he was here at Florida. And I think you heard him himself say he's a different person. You've heard those that have known him say he's a different person. And that does seem to be true. I think that what Dan is really good at is selling the opportunity that's available right now. And this is a simple class, like we mentioned, Alan, before this signing day. This is a simple class to sell. There's a lot of holes. There's a lot of early playing time at a premier school and a lot of chances for these guys to become immediate impact players. So he has a good thing to sell. So it has not changed my opinion of him. It has brought me confidence that he can, at the bottom level, at his floor level, probably be a top 10 recruiter, which is an immediate upgrade over McIlwain, who was not that kind of guy. So we're certainly getting a bump up there. Whether or not he takes the next step forward, we'll see. Uh, what are what are your thoughts? Have they changed since you've seen this early signing day? I don't know if they've changed. Like you said, I, it's a encouraging sign because he basically went head-to-head with Florida State, Ohio State, and you know, if you depending on who you ask, Alabama for Emory Jones. And now you're right. He had something that none of those other schools really had was – you can walk in here day one and no one is standing in front of you for the job. And that's incredibly appealing at a place like Florida that you can, I mean, you can say like, Oh, there's playing time available if you win the job, but he has to be the favorite to play from day one. Now that's looking at for this angle. Of course there's spring ball and all the summer and so many things that could happen, but you'd have to fix him as the favorite to start day one. Unless some of these one of these guys comes out of nowhere, really stake the claim on the job, or he's just not ready. And so Mullen did have that to offer, but it's still a big, big win, and it shows he can go up against the big boys and recruit, and that's got to be encouraging. And you're right; we'll have to see what happens in February, and also, really, like you said, the standard is year two, and often if you're an elite recruiter, year two is your masterpiece class in a lot of ways. You've seen that from guys like Urban Meyer and now Kirby Smart that they assemble this class that's star studded. And that's hopefully what we'll see from Mullen next year. Well, obviously that's a long ways off and a lot of things that have to happen between now and then, but that's where he's aiming for. And if he can hit that kind of mark, that'd be really encouraging. So analysis wise, there are some other needs in this class. And one of those remains linebacker, uh, which we literally cannot sign enough linebackers. But as you mentioned, Alan, we are signing high end athletes and the difference between a safety and an outside linebacker are really non-existent. You could argue coming out of high school if a kid's got the right frame. So if you can take some of the guys we've signed, they're already 200 pound safeties out of high school, which is a bigger safety coming out of high school, put 20 pounds on them. They're 220, 225. That's an outside linebacker in the SEC and a 3-4. So that's potential, and I'm glad you mentioned that. That's potential. But what are some other needs that that we need to see Mullen addressing strategically? What should he be doing before the February signing day to essentially signal to us that he's continuing to understand what it takes to build a roster? Well, I think some of the obvious ones are offensive line, wide receiver, and I think corner as well. Even though we took a lot of corners last year, all of the guys on our team are young and there's just not a lot ahead of them. So even though we have some really good ones, there's not a lot of depth behind them. Um, Offensive line, we have another kind of big time recruit committed, but not signed. 
And that's something that's weird right now because we're not sure what to do with that. Um, I wanted to mention this. I would say anybody who's committed but not signed is not really committed. Doesn't mean that they're not going to sign, but uh, I don't know. Florida's in on a lot of these top offensive linemen recruits. So hopefully that'll be a place that we can bring in some top guys. And then wide receiver, that's the place I think we got hit hardest in the decommitment phase. Anytime you change coaches, you're going to have a, a lot of decommitments. Lost a lot of top guys. I think some of them are maybe interested in coming back in. Others are not. They signed elsewhere. But that's got to be a position that he needs to land, I think, at least two impact guys. And not of the kind of three-star you know, range guys, but top tier guys, if they're on the board. Um, now what you're going to see happen is everyone's, the dust is going to settle after Friday. Everyone's going to look around and some teams are going to have be almost capped out and be just recruiting just a couple guys and they can focus on them. Uh, but there's not going to be that many top guys left. And so they're going to get a ton of attention. So this will be interesting to see how this plays out moving forward. What our competition is at certain these spots. Some of these guys, maybe their best option is us because some of the guys they were considering, other schools, already took their fill of that position. Um, if you're interested in recruiting, this is the Wild West right now. Uh, I don't love to follow it on a day-to-day, -day, but I'm going to be fascinated how the rest of this shakes out. And one thing to keep in mind, since we haven't really totally talked about it yet here, and we, we hinted at it earlier, Recruiting, again, is best followed, in my opinion, by looking at your top 100 players, your top 300 players, and your roster. You have to make sure you're adequately building reserves that come in and take over for your guys as they graduate, leave, etc. That's a process that's really, really, really important. The names of these individual players, their backgrounds, where they're from, falling in love with them, that doesn't matter that much. It's really just a probability game. If I get X amount of players in the top 100, I know that X percent of the time, one of them will become a successful starter in the league. If I can do that every single year, I have an entire roster of guys that can play. That's really the name of the game. McIlwain was absolutely awful at that, despite people's best hopes and intentions that it was working and that we were getting better. You heard us say that each and every year, that there were just bafflingly questionable decisions being made on recruiting, and that caught up with us. And as we head into this offseason, uh, you know, you look at guys like Callaway, he's probably going to be you know, out forever. He's not going to be here anymore. And now you look at our receiving core and I think you have guys that can play, but like you mentioned, Alan, you'd like to sign a couple of other guys or you get in this weird wonky situation where now you've missed a year of, of wide receiver talent development. Gavin, that will also catch up with you. Uh, aside from what you mentioned, I expect Mullen to attempt to sign another quarterback. I expect this guy to be maybe a two or three star kind of project guy because you need an adequate backup. I would also expect and maybe not expect, but this should happen. Franks, Trask, and Jake Allen should all transfer if they seriously want to pursue college football as something that they can maximize their talent in. If they just want to get an education and football is kind of done for them, then they should stay. But none of those guys should stay in this program if they want to play and truly maximize their skill at this level. I don't know that they'll all transfer. It's typically not what happens. But if they were my kids, I would tell them to transfer. They need to go to a school that fits them. I think Mullen's already aware of this, but you have to have a backup for Emory Jones. And ideally, you'd want a guy that could run the football. You'd want a big, sizable guy that can run it and throw all that well. There's there's those guys that are out there. And I would expect us to try to land one more of those. It's sort of like a patchwork gap guy until we can get into next year where we I plan on assigning one or two more quarterbacks to get the number to four, four Mullen guys, uh, if you will. All right. 
Now, other programs, Alan, fared well, not so well, to extremely well on early signing day. This was the first one ever. Maybe as a lead, a bit surprisingly, Alabama was not the headline winner. In fact, they kind of slid backwards in the rankings a little bit. Uh, they're somewhere between 6 and 7, depending on what you look at, which is low for Alabama. Alabama and Florida State have finished the recruiting rankings number one every year since 2010. Alabama has been number one most of those times. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name some of these programs here, Alan, and I want you to just give me your reaction on what their early signing day was. We'll start with Clemson. I mean, Clemson, kind of incredible when you look at their top-shelf talent that they signed. Signed the number one quarterback, the number one defensive player on some boards. Um, really high-end ta- talent. You know, didn't sign a ton of players, but uh, gosh, some of the guys they got were really impressive. Yeah, their class is nothing short of extremely exciting. Number one defensive end, number one offensive lineman, number one quarterback, number one linebacker. What they're, what Dabo's doing there is 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 really something special. And stealing stealing that O-lineman right out of Ohio from Urban Meyer uh, with a little barb that Urban Meyer's on the back end of his career, which is sort of ridiculous to say that. But either way, uh, Dabo is, is feeling it right now. I think he feels like it's his time, and it should be. Three years in a row in the playoffs, crushing it in recruiting, something he hasn't really done uh, numbers-wise yet, doing it this year. Very, very solid things in Clemson. Uh, Ohio State. I mean, solid as usual. You'll see them at the top of most services. Um, maybe not as good as they might have hoped. They signed a lot of guys, and they lost a few, you know, kind of high-profile guys. Um, had to stop recruiting Micah Parsons, a big-time defensive end, who ended up at Penn State. You know, lost the aforementioned Embry Jones to the University of Florida. Um but they're in the top like three or four, depending on where you look. So that's got to be a success for them in the early signing period. Yeah, predictably excellent is what I think of when you think of Ohio State. It's just almost routine for them. Georgia, Allen, Georgia's early signing day. I mean, kind of terrifying, <laughs> honestly. Um, like we said, if you're a top-tier program, you're going to have a big year in year two. Signed a ton of five-star guys on rivals, at least one, two, three, four, five, six five-stars. I think there's only 20 of them, 25 of them maybe. Um, That's impressive. And a lot of those guys are from Georgia, so that helps them uh, in their recruiting base. But impressive, impressive job by Kirby Smart, who uh, is looking like he knows what he's doing now. Muschamp pulled in a top tier recruiting class his second year. Uh, so if you're still hoping you might turn into Muschamp 2.0, there's still hope, I guess, for you out there. But that's not what he's looking like right now. No, he looks a lot more like Nick Saban 2.0, and, and it is terrifying. We started off the analogy with him being on an unlit bonfire, and he has, he has lit the bonfire, and he's burning other SEC programs at the stake is what's going on now. And, and uh, the talent in Georgia this year is astounding. We signed Emory Jones, who's the 40th best player in the nation. He's the seventh best player in the state of Georgia. Yeah, that's right. Do the math on that one, right? So you've got you know, 15 20% of your top 50 guys are from one state. So yes, that's helping Kirby, but Kirby is plucking guys from wherever he wants uh, the momentum there is is undeniably strong. And as we said before the SEC championship prediction, Alan, when I said if Georgia wins that game, 
this is a doomsday scenario for Florida. And I got a lot of texts and messages and people are really still sleeping on Kirby Smart. Oh, but he only runs the ball. Oh, but he only does this. Stop sleeping on Kirby Smart, guys. This is a terrifying prospect for Florida. It's one of the reasons why I have the the $1,000 bet that Dan Mullen won't win an SEC title because he's got to beat Kirby and somebody else from the West and another West opponent on the rotating schedule. Uh, this is a nightmare, I think, for Florida. Kirby's proving he knows exactly what he's doing. There's a tremendous amount of hype in that program. And like you said, maybe the small silver lining is he could still be Will Muschamp, but I don't think that's the case. He's hitting every metric we espouse on this podcast and I hold dear to, including the three-year rule, the two-year star recruiting rule. He's hitting all of them as home runs. And when that happens, you typically have found yourself an elite guy. So as a Florida fan, strap it on and get ready for what could be many years of hopefully great battles with Georgia, assuming we can get a coach that can do battle with him. But I think gone are the days of disrespecting Georgia. You're going to need to put that notion behind you. Uh, It's not going to be the same world's largest outdoor cocktail party feeling anymore. And that should scare you, as I think it rightfully so scares Alan and I. Now, Alan, I want to bring up Matt Luke at Old Miss. Thoughts on his early signing day class? I mean, solid, especially if you consider the sanctions that are looming for them. Uh, you know, pulled in Matt Corral, like we talked about. So decent job by them, I think, you know, considering their situation that they're dealing with, I guess. Yeah, some might argue, like, amazing. He signed four four-star guys that he that he flipped all of them. Flipped the top receiver, flipped the top quarterback. Uh, I think Matt Luke has something going. I'm a fan of Matt Luke. I think anyone who goes 6-6, six and six, given what happened to Old Miss in this previous season, is, is nothing short of miraculous. I think it's not an exciting hire, but it's the right hire. And I think Matt Luke is proving Old Miss right. Even if he went 6-6 six and six every year until they were out of the sanction period, Alan, and I know you don't agree with me on this, I think he would have brought the program back to where they could hire a better coach. But there's a chance. There's a chance that Matt Luke becomes a decent coach in the SEC. Now, it's too early to say that, but really solid early signing day for a program that kind of feels like they're dead, but yet continues to maintain some sort of momentum. They lose Shea Patterson to Michigan, and what they do is they they go and replace him with a top-flight quarterback in, in Matt Corral. Alabama, I mentioned, uh, sort of, quote-unquote, falling behind. They may not finish number one this year. Uh, they're having oh, no. a hard, hard time signing a quarterback at this point in time, right? Uh, the Jalen Hurts factor is for real. When you start a freshman at Alabama, this is something to note, uh, sports fans, is when you start a freshman who's going to be there for three years and maybe four, because Jalen Hurts is a smart guy, and he has zero potential as an NFL quarterback, and and I think maybe he even knows that because he's self-aware enough. He would have to switch positions to really, I don't think, anything. So he's not going to be a guy that I think plays in the league. He could be there all four years. Uh, and, and I think you're starting to see this effect now on Alabama's roster. And this decision-making by picking a floor guy uh, may or may not be affecting their recruiting. Now, you're not going to press the panic button there, but they've got a guy from Hawaii on their roster who's supposedly a really solid talent. And uh, I don't think he's going to transfer yet, but keep an eye on how that happens. And and that that will be something Florida could deal with with Emory Jones as well down the road. It's not a bad problem to have, Alan, but it is something that's, I think, cropping its head up in Alabama's class. Any other early signing day classes uh, you want to mention? I know we should talk about Florida State. Florida State's like 36 in the country right now. They had a big signing today as of Thursday where they got a recruit they're excited about. Uh, it's the lowest they've been in a long, long time. Would you be concerned if you're Florida State right now? Yes. I mean, whatever you want to look at their ranking, that includes committed guys. 
who have not signed, they only signed four guys yesterday. And they lost out on a couple of high-profile guys. And again, this is tough. This is why we said Dan Mullen did an excellent job considering what the cards he was dealt. Um, that's doesn't mean they can't turn it around, sign a lot of these guys who are committed yet not signed. I don't know. It, it, if you want to be encouraged by Dan Mellon, you'd have to be a little discouraged by Willie Taggart, who basically makes his money as a recruiter. Now, this is super early. Again, super early, but not a great first day for them. Um, so maybe, you know, one up in Georgia, one down in Florida State, at least of, you know, here in December in 2017. Um, we'll see how that plays out in the future, but not not a great day for them. Yeah, and it should be noted that there are some fans and friends of mine, Tyler Rummery, getting a name drop, who was maybe the first <laughs> the first fan of this podcast. I think he calls himself like the first fan of the Gatorade Football Podcast, which is actually true. It's accurate. But Tyler has totally of the opinion, uh, Alan, that, that Willie Taggart is a vastly overrated recruiter. And if you pull the numbers out, that essentially he's been given a lot of praise and promise, but he really hasn't ever recruited at an elite level. Uh, Oregon, of course, was taking a significant bump up, uh, but you know a lot of that was being excused with a lot of signees early. Either way, either way, I'm with you. Uh, Taggart was way behind the eight ball. He left Oregon after a year. He left him late in the process. He hasn't hired any coaches yet. Um, it's too early to judge what's happening to him, but if you're a Florida State fan, you have recruited so well for so long. This is a huge anomaly for you, and this will be interesting to see what he patches together because, look, these recruiting classes matter. They they matter. They really, really do. And if Florida State has a year where they completely miss in recruiting, it will affect them down the road. Uh, again, not entirely in Taggart's control here, given the hand that he's dealt. We'll see what happens by February, but I think a little bit concerning uh, at this point in time. And also maybe mention Texas, who they've got what seems like a top five class. So Tom Herman maybe exercising some of that year two stuff going on. Um, yeah, looking good for him as well. And so uh, Texas being good, I think it's fun for college football. So I'm in favor of that. Yeah, and great point. I like how the year two, like we said, it holds true with these elite guys. Now, Herman's a lot of guys, a lot of people would think would pass the three-year test. And we're going to find out. This is year two from upcoming. You would expect significant improvement with the win-loss total. And he's already significantly improving the recruiting, especially when you look at the entire depth of who he's bringing in and how he's addressing the roster. Uh, some services have them as high as number two or number three thus far. So a big, big step up for Texas as far as who they're pulling in this recruiting period. All right, let's check out some other Gator news. Made a higher... Uh, a secondary coach, maybe special teams coordinator. We'll have to see what responsibilities he's given. Charlton Warren out of Tennessee. James, what do you know about him? Well, I know that my my text message thread, which gives me all sorts of great info, is uncovered that he's a really excellent defensive back coach. He was at Tennessee last year, and you might think, wait a minute, Tennessee's defense sucked last year. He vastly improved their defensive backfield. He's done this at other schools he's been at, including North Carolina, Air Force, a uh, guy in his mid-30s. I think he's a, a younger guy that can be known as a recruiter, which fits what Dan Mullen's been hiring. He's been hiring a lot of guys in their mid-30s and younger to be on the staff. And so I think this is something Dan clearly believes in. And uh, and this is a guy that fits Dan's aggressive defensive mentality. 
the numbers when you're pulling them out and really isolating them uh, look pretty good. And it's, it's too early, of course, to know for sure. But as far as a hire goes for a secondary coach, I like, again, that it fits a strategy that Dan has. There's a consistent theme with each person Dan pulls in. I can look and say there's a purpose behind that. And I think that's good. So other speculative news, I guess. Um, you're going to see a lot of coaches changing, I think, over the next couple of weeks in between the first recruiting period and the second not wanting to make a lot of moves to upset the apple cart until they get those early guys in. And it's unfortunate. It's not maybe the best way to do things, but I don't know that there's any way around it, at least at this moment. Seems like Juwan Sider is going to stay as our running backs, running, running backs coach. That's at least the word around the program. Tim Skipper, maybe, maybe not. Um, I think he's a guy who'd be decent to hold on to. He can coach a lot of different positions. Um, we'll have to see on that. Uh, since we last podcasted, Brad Davis, our offensive line coach, left for Missouri. That seemed to be the writing on the wall because of John Hevesy, who is offensive line coach slash co-offensive coordinator at Mississippi State, who followed Dan Mullen to UF. And that, I mean, Brad Davis maybe was a good recruiter, maybe was a good O-line coach, only on the staff for one year. So I don't know if that's a huge loss. Um, time will tell on that. And in other news, Eddie Pinheiro, our prize kicker, has declared for the draft along with Taven Bryan. What do you think about Eddie's decision? Yeah, he definitely should have went. He couldn't have accomplished anything more. And and anyone who follows kickers, we had Caleb on the show earlier. Caleb's a friend of ours. He'll be the first to tell you that really what they care about is have you made big kicks in college? That's maybe 15% of the allocation. And the entire other 85% is how do you kick in shorts and a t-shirt during the combine, pro days, workouts, etc. Vis-a-vis, how big is your leg and how accurate are you? <laughs> Those are things that Eddie Pinheiro did astoundingly well last year. So once he's done them in a game, we know he can clearly do them in practice. There's nothing more that he can accomplish as a kicker at the University of Florida. I think it's wise for him to go. Uh, I also think the NFL, Allen is in a weird place with kickers right now. There's been plenty of articles that are saying this might be the worst, the worst the NFL kickers have been in history, uh, which is interesting. I think a lot of that has to do with the extra points and people missing more of them. Maybe it's causing more head games, but uh, I'm sure that's not lost on Eddie Pinheiro. There are a lot of opportunities in the league right now, and I think that he's wise to go. It will be sad to see him leave, especially because we never truly, Allen, gave him a shot to kick like a 70-yard field goal, which I think is a bummer. Yeah. Uh, We should have at least done it once. I mean, just for kicks. I mean, give the guy a shot at it. I'm sure the NFL will at some point in time, so we'll have to watch him try that there. Yeah, this is great for him. Um, I think he'll find his way in the NFL pretty easily unless something goes way wrong. And, you know, there's something nice about 90,000 people chanting your name as a kicker. So I'm sure that wasn't easy to leave behind. He'll go back to being an anonymous kicker in the NFL, I assume. And then Taven Bryan, the Wyoming wild man, um, forgoes his what would have been his senior year, although he's been there for four years at UF. Um, I think this is a really good decision by him. He is peaking as a prospect, I think. Um, if he came back, I don't know that he would up his stock all that much. He's a really intriguing guy, a lot of strength, positional versatility along the defensive line. Saw him wreak havoc 
in the backfield. This is a guy that I think NFL teams are going to love. I think he's going to do well at the combine. So I'd be surprised to see him fall past like midway through the second round. And I, you know, this early in the draft process, but he's at least the guy who's on a lot of teams first round boards. At least that's what the rumors say. Yeah, right time for him to leave. He he's maximized his ceiling in the college game and and he could only have done harm. And I think everyone's comfortable with this notion now. I think we've gotten over the fact that these guys should play all four years here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you've put your whole life into this sport and you have a chance to maximize your value in an economic sense, you should do it. It's perfectly reasonable. It's what's best for you and your family. Uh, and I think that that's the wise thing to do if you're looking at your skill set. I mean, I think that's what any of us would do. Alan, I'm sure right now, if someone said, hey, Alan, you're at the peak of your podcasting skills, I'm going to offer you $5 million to come podcast for ESPN, uh, or you can stay and do the Gator Nation podcast next year. You'd probably look at it and say, you know what? I think the $5 million is great. I'm not sure my my Never, I would never better. do that. Right, right. So. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. So you would leave the 15,000 or so listeners we have and then head to Greener Pastures. But this makes perfect sense for Taven Bryan, and uh, his contributions to the program were, were, were solid, and he really had a, an excellent year. And uh, I think an NFL team is going to be happy to get him, especially if they put him in the right scheme. All right. Yeah, I think the I would say the only type of player who might want to stick around is if you're a generational-type legacy type player and you play a position where you're probably not going to get hurt um and you have a chance to win a championship or a heisman or something like that that's very appealing but otherwise yeah it only makes sense to really jump but you know what some guys really enjoy college maybe don't want to play in the nfl as much and you know they're free to stay too that it can be a really good choice but i would never begrudge a guy leaving early i would only question whether that's a wise move or not. But if they have the chance to leave and they want to go, I think that's a great move. Yeah, and that's the key, right? Like we're talking about maximizing your economic value is a mathematical look at it. There's also psychological development, other things that go on uh, for sure. So we'll give you a little bit of Gator basketball talk. This Gator basketball team, Alan, has been the most confusing basketball team I have followed in my lifetime. Uh, and in essentially what we said on the last pod has been exactly right. If you're a Gator basketball fan and you followed this, we said that Mike Krzyzewski had figured out essentially Florida's kryptonite in the last eight minutes of that basketball game. He put the game plan out there. Every other team starting with Florida State finishing with James Madison, James Madison last night has followed that to a T, uh, which is a refresher, is you mix in some 2-3 zone. You make sure all five guys are always back playing defense. You do not allow Florida to transition and you make it a half-court game. We still, now four or five games post that Duke game, have not figured out how to actually beat that strategy. We've won a few games. We have not looked good doing it. Uh, we are essentially stifled. And and this is, I think, one of those good things. I'm going to take a, a, a silver lining view here, Alan. I think okay. it's a good thing, because I think that Mike White, up until this point in time in his career, has relied on his own strategy which we've known to be a full court, up and down, jack up a ton of shots kind of game. And he's in a gap year this year, recruiting-wise, right? We kind of mentioned how he came in slowly, and he, had, he wasn't a name people knew about, and now he's getting his recruiting momentum going. So he's got a roster of guys that are solid, but it's not exactly the perfect roster. And of course, we're missing a big man. This is forcing Mike White to improve his half-court awareness, effectiveness, tactics, and I'm not sure he would have had to focus this much on it had he had the team he wanted. 
because it's not really a part of his strategy. But if he wants this particular team to succeed, he's going to have to continue to create ways for us to be able to score in the half court, which means we have to go from running four or five sets to maybe 15. Uh, And that's something, again, he doesn't normally put a lot of emphasis on. But clearly at this point in time, when teams like James Madison, who are who are way outside of our talent level, can effectively slow us down and stop us with this strategy, it's going to be something that every single team is going to use, which brings me to our last benefit. Because this strategy is so effective against us, we are getting so much practice against it now that if we can, Alan, figure it out, by the time we get to March, we could be in a really good spot. And so that, to me, I think is the sort of meta discussion on Gator basketball right now is can we solve how teams are defending us? Yeah, it's been really perplexing watching this team. I would have expected them to figure out this problem quicker. And I think there's obviously some limitations roster-wise, but we have the personnel to shoot through a zone, and we like shooting a lot. So it seems like it shouldn't be that big of a problem, but it is. And I haven't dived in totally into the X's and O's and watched a lot of, you know, kind of commentary on this, but I continue to be hopeful that we'll be able to pull out of it. The, the guy that I think is key to this is Kayvon Allen. And unfortunately he's following a trend of a lot of star Gators shooting guards going back to Brett Nelson and of course, Kenny Boynton guys that you would expect by the time they get to the end of their careers to be you know, peaking or at least exceeding what they did as a freshman and a sophomore, and he seems lost. And I mentioned him last time. Uh, as many minutes as he plays, as many shots as he takes, if he can't compete at a high level, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull out of this funk as easily as we, we probably should be. So that's, that's a huge key for us moving forward, and hopefully he can continue to figure it out. Yeah, between him and three Gore Allen, that's a lot of shots that are being put up each game, and very few of them are turning into points. Yeah, I think three Gore would be much better as a guy who is catch and shoot wide open threes, who can, you know, drive the ball through some closeouts and you know rebound better than a guy his size. But he's being asked to be the focal point of our offense, and I don't know that he's capable of that at least right now. And we need some guys to step up. So we'll see if that happens. With that, let's go ahead and close this thing out. Uh, Thanks for joining us for a little kind of midweek post-early signing day podcast. And hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you're excited about what's going on in Gator Nation. I know we are. And hopefully the next signing day will be at least as fruitful. And we'll be back sometime in January to give you all the updates and all the insight and all the analysis. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you guys soon.
great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint, and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10, or call 800-SPRINT-1 today. $19.79 a month after $19.80 monthly credit. Apply with two bills with approved credit, 18-month lease, and new line of service. If canceled, literally remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through the activation fee restrictions apply. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.